This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. Today I'm speaking with Kali Ladd and Ron Herndon. Kali is Executive Director and Co-Founder of Kairos PDX, a nonprofit organization that houses a public charter school in North Portland. As an organization, Kairos is dedicated to closing opportunity and achievement gaps for historically marginalized children. Ron is the longstanding director of Portland's Albina Head Start with a background in activism and leadership advocating on behalf of low-income families and children. Kali and Ron, welcome. Thanks for joining me today in the CI offices. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Black student achievement and the historic experiences of black children in Portland public schools and in Oregon is at the center of the story. Today we'll discuss the public charter school at Kairos, which is currently housed in a building owned by PPS, formerly Humboldt Elementary School, and has been at risk of losing its lease with the district. Let's start with the purpose of Kairos and what it means for Portland. Kali Kairos began in 2012 with an early learning network and opened Kairos Kairos Learning Academy in 2014, which was originally conceived as a magnet program for Portland Public Schools. Um, Can you tell me where the idea came from and why, why you wanted to create a new program for the district? Well, Portland has an egregious achievement gap between students of color and white students. African American students have been at the bottom of outcomes for a long time in the K-12 system and PPS. And we, what I saw was a lot of conversations about how we need to close the gap, but not a lot of meaningful, innovative work happening within the educational enterprise that was actually moving the needle, particularly for young children. There were good programs that were focused on middle and high school, um, but and there's good programs and you know the early early years but there was nothing in those formative sort of elementary grade preschool elementary grade years that we felt like we're pushing uh, change for children. And part of it was, it's more than test scores, it's really how do you bring in families, bring in community in a way that yields better outcomes for children beyond just the rigorous academics, which are also important. And can you talk a little bit about how that evolved into the idea for the charter school? Well, the idea was just to have a school. Um, and we wanted to have, you know, We wanted to incubate something in practice that could be replicated and scaled in terms of what actually worked to help children thrive. And when we looked at thriving children, we looked at academic success, we looked at social emotional well-being, and we looked at cultural knowledge and awareness. Can you say more about the, I'd like to get just more information about the philosophy and design of Kairos, but and can you also talk about the Early Learning Network and mm-hmm. what that is intended to do? Well, the Early Learning Network, we knew, I had an opportunity to participate early on with the All Hands Raised work that was focused on cradle-to-career um, opportunities for children, and in that steering committee, we talked about um, in the early, early years um, that Head Start was great. Um, 50% of Head Start eligible kids are not in Head Start because of long waiting lists and not able to get in. Where are those children? And what was interesting is the steering committee conversations focused really on how do you support Head Start children. And in my head, the Head Start children are probably the best off children there are. And when it comes to low income kids, it's the children that aren't able to get into Head Start. How do we support them? Many of those children were in what I would call family, friends, and neighbor care situations. So they were being watched by grandmas and and aunties and folks in non-formal child care settings. And so we were targeting uh, 
those people that are caring for children who are not, you know, teachers and they're not in preschool settings, but that they're having an impact on the lives of children zero to five. And so we wanted to provide research-based um, information that helped them support their children better. Okay. And and talk a little bit more about the the, the philosophy behind Kairos. And uh, I was reading a little bit about the Reggio Emilia approach. Yeah. And can you, can you say more about the learning environment at Kairos? Yeah. I mean, I think Reggio came out of... Uh, Reggio, Italy, um, which is a small little town in Italy. It was discovered because uh, it was a community that was outperforming the rest of the country academically. Um, Reggio, I think, came about in response to post-World War II. It was a city rebuilding itself. A country was rebuilding itself um, in that era. And they they posed the question, what would it look like to create an entire community centered around children? And what would it look and feel like? And what if children really do hold more power and significance than we give them credit for? Right, and right. what if we listen to children? What could we learn? How would society improve? That's a really powerful framework to enter into education. And I think it's particularly powerful for black and brown children. And so, and in fact, Lisa Delpit, who is sort of a well-known researcher um, around black student success has talked about Reggio as being an optimal sort of environment for a black child because it really empowers the child. It's saying your voice matters, you matter, when you have a society that is countering that every moment. And so um, in the same way Reggio uplifted the voices of children in Reggio, Italy, we wanted to uplift the voice of children who we know are, are marginalized and often ignored and not heard. And we felt that that basis, that empowerment basis sets a foundation for their learning for years to come. And that, you know, I think it was Malcolm X, but I think other people have talked about, you know, if you let other people define you, um, you sort of succumb to to what they say you are. Right. You need to be able to define yourself. And so children taking ownership of their destiny and ownership of what they're capable of at a young age, we felt was very important for the success of children in the long term. So... That's part of why we brought in Reggio. The other thing about Reggio, too, it really integrates the arts and um, this idea that children speak in multiple languages beyond verbal communication mm -hmm. and that movement and, and dance and, 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 you know, visual arts are ways that they can communicate with one another um, that is as equally powerful and literate. And I think uh, historically we have a tradition in communicating in many ways culturally beyond just sort of verbal communication. And so it provides a um, space for children to naturally communicate in these different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think for children that are on their pathway towards literacy, it validates what they have to say, enables them to share story. Um, even though they might not be able to write it all out yet. Right. And while we're moving right. towards literacy, it just it provides an opportunity and, again, reinforces um, that their presence and their words and their ideas matter. Yeah. Both of you are focused on early learning, Ron, with preschool and Head Start. Uh, Kali, we, we, as we've just talked about, the early grades and the early learning network at Kairos. Can you talk about the importance of creating experiences for children in the early years, uh, the importance of creating really positive uh, experiences and do you see a connection between your work uh, in terms of thinking about the connection between preschool and K-5 or the elementary grades? Ron, could you talk about that? Well, finally, I think most of the science community has come around to agree that the first years of children's lives are extraordinarily important and in many ways shape what the rest of their lives will look like. And Head Start has been very successful 
in helping families and, and children begin to reach their potential at a very, very early age. And the research is there that children who go through Head Start, they do far better in, in high school, in life. They're uh, less likely to be involved in the criminal justice system, more likely to go to college, more likely to own homes. And what I think is, is very, very important, and they're healthier, they and their siblings, even the siblings who haven't gone to Head Start are, are healthier. I think the last time we were together, I mentioned that during the, the lat latter years of um, George Bush's, and uh, George W. Bush's administration, research came out and credited Head Start with lowering the childhood mortality rate in the entire country as children between the ages of five and eight. And that's extraordinary given that most children, the majority, overwhelming majority of children in this country do not attend Head Start. But mm -hmm. it would appear to me that Head Start parents have shared this information about health care, dental care with neighbors and with family members. Also, as important, helping children to develop what Kali talked about, this confidence in themselves, uh, the determination. And these test scores that I talked about that Head Start, uh, indicate Head Start children doing so very well, frequently these are, these are children who go to some of the worst performing schools in this country. But I think because their parents have learned how to advocate for them, children have developed confidence in themselves, and because of that, in many instances, they're able to overcome the horrendous educational system that they see themselves caught up in and move forward. Um, I always enjoy telling the story of a lady that I, I work with who came to this country with uh, her two children. She did not speak English. She got them involved in one of our extended Head Start programs. They attended Boys. They attended Tubman. And the son received a master's from Stanford, computer sciences, a master from excuse me, Columbia, computer sciences. And this summer just received his PhD from Stanford. The mm -hmm. daughter received her PhD in health sciences summer of 2017. It wasn't because they went to uh, Catlin Gable and then to Exeter. Right. It's because they had a mother who believed deeply in their potential, and they learned to have su supreme confidence in what they could do. So that, to me, is anecdotal. And, and just joyful evidence of what happens if at an early age parents believe their children can do well. They're given support, and children are taught that the world is unlimited in terms of what you can achieve. Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. a, a local example. And the connection is a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of, of parents who leave our Head Start program run to Kairos. Mm -hmm. The word is out. Right. You can get a, a very, very fine education there and beyond, as Kali said, beyond the academics, a sense of self-worth. It's probably as important, if not more important, than everything else that you pick up in school. Right. And I did want to ask, are, are students leaving Head Start and enrolling in Kairos yes. from your programs? Yes. Is that, do, you, do you have comments on how these two areas intersect? It's something that we think about at Children's Institute in terms of what we're doing in preschool uh, will have an impact on what's happening in the early grades in kindergarten. And there needs to be some kind of you know, con continuum that mm -hmm. kids are moving along. Um, do, you have, do you have comments on that and on how that looks? 
No, I agree. I think it's very important. Uh, we've had a partnership, uh, and Ronnie and I have talked about deepening our partnership. Uh, if we can get a building solidified, mm -hmm. I would love to have sort of a co-located program that we can um, have children in the same space and our teachers collaborating with one another. Right. Uh, but no, it's it's key, and I think that transition is is very important. We share. Uh, philosophy around families as first teachers and being so integral to the success of children and I think both of us really work hard to engage families empower families we respect families and we have relationship with families and that's a big difference I think from other places how would you describe the value of a program like Kairos given that african-american students make up more than half of the student body um, how would you describe the value of of your program for the city of Portland and for Portland's black community? I mean, we're having an impact. Our data shows that we are getting results. We're seeing um, majority of our children growing more than a year's worth in a year's time, which is what you need to close the gap. So um, from a growth standpoint, our children are learning and growing in the way that they need to, which is important because we're not looking at that as a system. Um, we have the first snapshot in third grade, which is not enough time to really get kids on the trajectory towards success. And we start in kindergarten and looking at our children learning and growing in the way they need to and uh, work with a MAP assessment out of NWEA to look at that. Um, and then even in our third grade test scores, we have a small sample size, but um, it's three times larger than the overall district average for black students. So in the small amount of time, and even with the small sample size, we're showing progress. And I think it's an opportunity. I think where I my hope is that Portland can see it as an opportunity. We've had at least five other districts ask us to uh, do professional development and some training on what we're doing for African-American students. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think when black students succeed, <laughs> other students succeed as well. I mean, black students as an aggregate are the, are the lowest performing students right now in Portland Public Schools. So mm. if we can improve outcomes for those students, many other students will benefit. And I think we're doing some really important work that um, the district can learn from. And I, I definitely feel like there are elements of the model that can be replicated regardless of the cultural makeup of the student body. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important to be culturally specific, whatever the culture group is you're working with, because that's part of that identity and sense of self. We happen to be working with black students, so that is how we lean into culturally specific work with the African-American population. But even in, say, a rural area, you could you could create a cultural program that is not Afrocentric, but mm -hmm. still pertinent to the culture of that community, right. and do some of the work that we're doing and get results. And that's what's exciting to me. Portland Public Schools has a history of, uh, of failing to adequately serve African-American students, and PPS is, is, is the largest district in the state, but it also has the largest number of black students in Oregon with nearly 4,500 uh, students enrolled. Third grade reading and math scores are well below targets, chronically below, uh, which is also true for the other top nine districts after PPS. Uh, with the most black children enrolled. Um, so Ron, I want to turn to you. Could you discuss some of that history and its relevance today? I think uh, not only in Portland public schools, but certainly throughout the country, there's this perception that black children uh, come into the system as damaged goods, that they come from families that are, that are filled with, with deficits, and there is the expectation that they won't do as well. And unfortunately, uh, frequently, 
children will meet our expectations. One of the other problems is that overall the country does a very poor job in training teachers and even poor job in training principals. So essentially you have teachers who are trying to learn on the job. That is not a recipe for success. Instead of analyzing the problem and coming up with some workable solutions, the response historically has been if, if children perform poorly, it's the parents' fault or the community's fault. And I can remember years ago, back in the 70s, uh, Portland Public Schools' response, these low test scores, was SES, low, low socioeconomic standards. And that if any child came from low-income circumstances, you could depend upon them doing poorly. So there was a, a built-in excuse mm -hmm. for children not doing well, built-in low expectations for children not doing well. And until you begin to address that in all of the reinforcing parts of the institution, you're not going to see a great deal of change unless parents get involved, intimately involved, like the mother I described earlier. That is the one way in which children and parents can overcome an educational system that is not designed for their success. And that, again, that gets back to the Head Start experience, that once parents understand that you and your support of your child can help them do well in spite of they are able to take those skills and insist that their children do well, become superb advocates for their children. So Portland Public Schools' failure to educate black children, and it's not just black children, low-income children, period. Mm -hmm. When we began the fight in the late 70s, early 80s to get rid of that horrendous busing system, and Portland Public Schools would share their, their data, these school, primary school that had the lowest scores was a school that was primarily white, low income in North Portland. Mm -hmm. Now they never talked about that. They didn't focus on that when they started about when they started talking about low socioeconomic status. School systems historically have done poorly for low income children, the poorest for children of color. And the only thing, Raphael, that I've seen that has ever, at least in Portland, address that in a way to try to make a difference has been when the black community has organized and fought against the, the worst excesses of that when we stopped that busing program cold that just sent thousands of black kids out to schools in many cases that are quite hostile to them, both the students and the staff, mm -hmm. and did not do anything to help their perception, the students' perception of themselves, quite the contrary. So that was an example of the black community coming together and said, no, we need and we will do better by our children. We will create a middle school. That's what led to the creation of Tubman. But it's an, it's an eternal battle. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an eternal battle because the reaction of the institution always is to go back uh, to norm, go back to what we're comfortable with, right. make decisions that we're comfortable with. Right. No emphasis on teacher training in a way in which you would put successful teachers in front of successful uh, teachers to instruct them how to, how to master their craft. And as I mentioned earlier, it's even worse for principals. Mm -hmm. Principals are not trained by successful principals. So when you have a system like that, <clears throat> pardon me, in which the chief practitioners 
systematically are poorly trained and have ingrained low expectations for certain children, for the majority of children, that is going to be a recipe for failure. And the, the school system in Portland has never, never adequately addressed that. Kairos uh, is an example of something that is has been started to address exactly what Ron is, is talking about. Um, what do we need to understand about the relationship today between Kairos and the Portland Public School District? Um, can you bring us up to speed where we're, where we're at today, Kali? We are in the process of trying to build relationship. I mean, we are within the district's portfolio. So even though we're a charter, we have fiduciary oversight by the Portland School District, which I think sometimes is, uh, people are misled to think we're just completely independent and, right. and we're not. Um, we have to submit quarterly financials and quarterly reports on our outcomes. The district collects all of our data. So um, we do have some accountability to the district. But what we haven't had and what I think we hope to have is meaningful partnership that really enables us to address some of the issues uh, that Ronnie describes. I do think that one of the challenges is we, our higher ed system is not addressing on the teacher training side. And so then it becomes you're, you're having to... I shouldn't say overall the higher ed system isn't. There are some shining lights, and I think there are some programs. I know that the teachers program out of PCC that is in partnership with PSU, Portland Teachers Program, has done a lot to train, particularly teachers of color, um, to have a mindset and framework of asset-based thinking around students of color, social justice. and um, But I know that some of those teachers, when they come out of the program and they go into schools, there's a lot of resistance to them being there and to their framework of how they engage in education and so, so many of them have left and go to other districts because it hasn't been a welcoming environment PPS hasn't been welcoming so I definitely think I'm an optimist so I think there's opportunity mm -hmm. and I am optimistic and hopeful I guess more than anything that we can have more meaningful partnership with the district and figure out how how the district can work to engage families better and um how they partner with community in meaningful ways. And as Ronnie said, um, I think most of the success that we've seen in the district has been when they partner with community-based organizations. And whether it's uh, the partnership Kairos has, the partnership SEI has, or Latino Network, you know, you can go across the board. Community-based organizations have an understanding and relationship with community that's unique that the district has never had. And um, there's so much distrust that's built up that it would it would take a while for them to get there. And yet, that relationship is pivotal to the success of children. Right. And so we have offered partnership. We actually gave them a proposal for partnership that was several pages long. And I think now's the, now's the you know, place where we see, like, is this something that the district wants to lean into? Uh, or do they want to continue things status quo? So you've talked about some of these other programs that have partnered with the districts. Are there, uh, and even the, the teacher training program, are there other examples either within PPS or maybe in other districts around the state or just elsewhere that you've seen that are that are successes that, that PPS could learn from? Um, are, are you seeing any other examples that we could point to? Most of the examples center around a particular school in that uh, success nationwide is, is generally because of a great principle uh, that the leadership at the top says, this is what we're going to do, this is what we expect, this is how we're going to work with parents, this is how we're going to involve parents, and this is where we expect children to do phenomenally well in, in this building. 
I'm not aware of any school system that has been able to replicate that. Um, several years ago, we brought to, here in Portland, we, we teamed up with the, um, with the with Associated Oregon Industries to bring together successful principals from around the country who were successfully educating low-income, black, white, Native American, uh, Latino children. Because at that point in time, Portland was talking about low socioeconomic status and this is why these children aren't learning. We said, no, there are people who are doing that. We brought these principals here to Oregon, had to support the business community and said, tell us what works. How were you able to do this? And these were principals from small schools, from large schools. I remember one guy ran, ran a primary school in, in Haver, Montana, primarily Native American. I'll never forget the name of the school was Lincoln. He said everybody called it Stinkin' Lincoln. Uh, Low-performance, low, low high-dropout rate even in primary school. He turned it into the best primary school in the city, best one in the city. People who did this in the South Bronx, people who did it in Texas, people who did it in Los, all across the country. The one thing they all said was the successes that they had were looked upon with suspicion by their peers, other principals, that the only way that you could get these children to do well in school must be because you were cheating on the test. Mm -hmm. Very similar to the experience that Jaime Escalante had. In, uh, in L.A., where you had these, these, these high school students just knocking the top of, of the most difficult math tests in the state, and what do they say? Oh, you, you have to be cheating. That was the response because, again, normally people think these children are not supposed to do well. So in, in responding to your, your question, oh, let me follow this up. That experience was chronicled in a, a book and a video. We even had James DePriest narrate the video of, of these principals talking about how they did this. Mm -hmm. The Oregon business community sent this to every school in the state, every school, including Portland public schools, right? Every, every school system, no response. Replicated the experience a few, about two years later and brought together international experts in education a gentleman from Germany who was running a teacher training program in the state of Lower Saxony, a gentleman from China who was running all their technical high, I'm sorry, Japan, running all their technical high schools, woman who ran early child education from uh, Vancouver, B.C., uh, from British Columbia, rather, a uh, gentleman ran, ran a superb technical high school in uh, England, woman at that time running, I think, the only private child care center in, in uh, China, brought them together with these principals as well as some successful Oregon principals and said, okay, how do you get children to international standards? About four days, uh, simultaneous translations going on, right? Bring all this data together, and again, Oregon business community paid for this primarily and came up with another book that said, here's how you get American students up to international standards. James DePriest narrated this video that talked about, interviewed all these folks, was sent again to every school district in this state. And I remember, I'll never forget, Portland in particular, one person told me, said, we, we watched uh, the video, it was very entertaining. It was like, as if they were watching a Roadrunner video or something like that. Was there an effort to translate this intellectual horsepower into any changes for children, I know in Portland, 
No. In particular, at the district level? No, at, nothing, yeah. not nothing was ever done with this information. So even I remember meeting with the gentleman at the time who was the head of uh, U.S. Bank down in San Francisco. We had a connection with him. He's, he's president, chairman of the board. He looks at this and he said, this is something that for businesses who, who are concerned about the quality of education, this is in late 1992, 93, the top 100, he's part of the top 100 businesses in the country, sent out a letter to them, said, if you're interested in school reform, here's what you need to take a look at and see if you can get it replicated. Nothing. Nothing across the country. So when you ask about examples, yeah, there are these lonely examples all around the country. And even when you bring them all together and you coalesce and distill what they have learned and put it in a book, you, you would think most people in education can read a book. And if they can't read, you can watch the video, right? This is what you do if you want children to succeed. Nothing was ever done systematically to incorporate what some of the finest minds in the world had said, this is what needs to be done if you want kids to succeed. I would just build off of that, too, in saying that as a system, Oregon is just finally at a place that it's bringing educators, teacher leaders uh, together around professional development and as a st there, the state hasn't had a professional development system. There hasn't been a concentrated effort and there's a lot of research that says you know the one day trainings are not how you get there. There has right. to be ongoing opportunity for learning. And so it happens in a very piecemeal way depending upon the district. But when you talk about system change, the state hasn't really provided any sort of framework or support for that. Um, and as you know, as a, as a system, we invest very little in our K-12 system compared to other states and even less in early childhood. So the investment in early education isn't there, nor has there been a way for teachers to have ongoing training in a systemic, systematic way. And I think those two things are really pivotal to move the needle in the way that you're describing, okay. and as Ronnie described. And the most important thing about our effort, we only brought together successful practitioners, not theoreticians, that before we accepted any of those principles in to this effort, we said, send us the test scores. I want to see, because I've seen too many examples of people who get educational awards, and you look at the academic achievement of the children that they're responsible for, and it is pathetic. So I think that when you begin to talk about uh, professional development, you have to insist that those who are involved in it, you can look at their track record and you can see that they've been successful with children, most certainly the children who are furthest behind. That rarely is ever, ever done. Normally, in a school system, you get promoted. If you're a principal, you get promoted into administration. You, there is no requirement that your children did well. And if you keep your nose clean, maybe you can be in charge of professional development. That's replicated at the state. I've seen so many people, without ending up in court, leave Portland Public Schools and end up taking these big-time jobs in the state of Oregon in education. I said, these folks historically had children performing poorly in the schools that they were responsible for. Now they have a job at the state. Well, congratulations. No, no other, I'm not aware of any other profession that does that. If you have a teaching hospital, they make sure you were a pretty good doggone doctor or surgeon or cardiologist 
before you're able to put into a position that you can teach others. Right. Only in education. That is never a requirement that you were a successful practitioner. And that's why we continue going through these same cycles. And you'll get somebody who'll come to town and say, well, you know what? I know a better way to do this. And just ask them a simple question. Show me the schools where you had kids who look like me scoring at or above grade level. Then I'll pay attention to what magic you have in a bottle. Today, what can Portland Public Schools do to signal that it is putting African-American students first? Well, I think it can. <laughs> I mean, as, as has been documented, um, we've been in a battle for our building and our space and uh, rootedness and place matters. Uh, disruption of place has a detrimental impact on children and children's success. And so um, the district committing to allowing us to have the, the space to, for our program to grow and thrive and, and giving us the runway we need to be able to build our own space, I think is really important. That's a first step. And so um, that's the point we're in, I think. Um, and then having a meaningful conversation around partnership and working together to improve black students' success. Um, there has been a lot of conversation and talk about wanting to do that, and yet um, the evidence has been to the contrary. And I, I do think, um, even where there have been pockets of success in this state for children of color, there have been none that have been for black children that did not involve partnership with a community-based organization. I have seen, I had the privilege of being able to work at the Department of Ed years ago, um, about 10 years ago now or more, and I saw you, there's some shining lights, uh, like Don Grotting, who he helped close the achievement gap for Latino students in the Nissa School District, which is a majority Latino district, and then went to David Douglas. He gets early childhood, you know, but I have not seen anything like that for for black students in this state uh what you've seen is the you know graduation rates at jefferson high school going up and being the highest they've ever been because of a partnership that sei um has there um that's the examples you know that we have and so i think if the district were to learn from history they would figure out a way all, all along the continuum to partner with organizations that are committed to and have demonstrated ability to serve black children and families well and I think that's the opportunity before them. And the question, you know, remains, will they choose to seize that opportunity or will they continue with business as usual? Even when they've had success with black children in Portland public schools, they have ignored it. In the late 1990s, early 2000, uh, Woodlawn Elementary School, which was probably at that time uh, approximately 95 percent black uh, majority eligible for free and reduced lunches. They had a phenomenal math instructor as well as a phenomenal principal, Linda Harris. I'm trying to think of the, the math instructor's name. They had those children scoring higher than white children in Portland Public Schools. They had some of the highest math scores in the state. Now you would have thought. It's good that you're here. <laughs> <laughs> you would have thought that someone would have said, hey, let's take this and replicate this all across the school system. Even the Oregonian had an editorial about how well these low-income black children were doing. Even the Oregonian wrote an editorial about it, congratulating the school. There was no effort in Portland public schools to replicate their successes. Even worse, Linda Harris is promoted into administration. <clears throat> okay, is she gonna be given a job training principals or teachers how to do well in math? No, 
put into some Rudy Poot position. They bring in a principal, I think from Eastern Oregon, who was allowed to dismantle the math program. Dismantle the math program. And guess what? The scores go right back down to where they had been historically, and everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. There was not one word said about, isn't this a crime? That right. when we have success with children that we say will not be successful, certainly in, in, in the tough disciplines like math and science, wouldn't we insist that that success be replicated? It was not. Mm-hmm. And that's here in Portland. So this system does not have a history of replicating successes even with in the district. And I don't see that that has changed at all because, see, nobody asks the question. They don't ask the question, who are our most, and this is not complicated. For the last, when they, we brought Asa Hilliard in here mm-hmm. almost 40 years ago mm-hmm. as a consultant to, to, to follow up on the, on the changes that we won with Portland Public Schools ending the busing system, he said even then with their computer system, which now would, would, would look antiquated, they could tell you every teacher in this system who was doing well in teaching black children how to read or to do math. It would be simple. You can do the same thing now. Normally, there are those shining examples. Well, look, bring those teachers together, figure mm-hmm. out what curriculum are they using, what methods are they using, let them teach other teachers. Do the same thing, do that in reading, do that in math, but oh no, there's no effort to do that. Mm-hmm. Everybody has their own idea of how this should be done, even though they don't have a track record of success. So the, the history in Portland Public Schools is to ignore those who have had success with these students, and never is, has there been an effort to replicate those successes. And that's not just a singular example. I mean, in the time that I've had a chance to spend talking with Ronnie or Joyce Harris, that that, that has happened multiple times where I would say they sometimes there has been a history of actively dismantling or actively taking out folks that have a demonstrated track record and putting them in positions somewhere in central office where they're not able to have an impact. There is a decades-long history of doing that. And so then you begin to question how committed are they to black students' success, which is part of why we're advocating so hard because it's our my feeling is it's about more than a building it's about this history of underserving black children in this district and how long can that continue before the community says enough is enough and right. I think the community is tired and we have historians in the community that have seen it for so long um, and it's it's tragic to me it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's criminal right. um, I also would say too, black students in Portland even middle-class black students in Portland do not do as well as black middle class students elsewhere. And so something is happening that is definitely racialized in this community that needs to be addressed. I I just want to touch on one last question. And this is, you you were talking about students at your school and this uh, concept of student empowerment and student Mm -hmm. voice. Mm -hmm. What What would Cairo students say today? What would they tell people who are listening about the situation they're in? About the building? About the building, about their educational experience at Kairos. What would what what do they want people to hear? Well, I mean, I think our children love being part of the community. They um, we had a child talk about how 
going to sc- the the community of Kairos is their family. Uh, we talk a lot about Kairos family and loving children, and I think our children know that they're loved. It's family to them. They are learning. They're um, being inspired every day. They have. If you walk through our halls, you see images of children. You see the words of our children um, posted because they're saying powerful things all the time, and they have the opportunity to document their story through photography, to problem solve scientific (laughs) dilemmas. Um, There is an active engagement of the head and the heart uh, at Kairos, and I think children experience experience that viscerally. Um, And so it's hard to speak for a child. Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) But I, I have heard one of our kids recently said, Kairos is my family. And I think when a child can say that, um, that's a powerful statement. Thank you. Uh, Colleen, Ron, I, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure a strong beginning for Oregon's children. Don't forget you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And you can also find episodes on our website at childinst.org.